Hi, I'm April Klimkevich. And I'm Amanda McClooney, and this is Her Step Forward, where we share stories of women who step up, step out, and step forward into careers and lives they love. Our guest today is Lena Alalami, a Dalai Lama Fellow, a Fulbright Scholar, and Wall Street Journal Woman of Note. We became friends in college during her first year in the U.S. at the University of Miami, and she's gone on to do remarkable things. Lena is the co-founder and managing director of 3BL Associates, which advises organizations on people and planet-related issues like peace, climate change, and inclusive economic growth. She has written a book on how to counter terrorism nonviolently, which we'll discuss today, and provides a global perspective as she has lived and traveled all over the world as a Muslim woman of Bahraini origin. Lena has won many awards, gave a TEDx talk on the anecdote to our global crisis of values, and has worked alongside key business and government influencers. And she even chaired a round table on empowering communities for positive change with Prince Charles of Wales. Lena's joining us today from her home country of Bahrain. Lena, we are so happy to talk with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. This is my first podcast interview. So, um, so yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Well, welcome. We promise we'll be kind. <laughs> okay, that, that kind of makes me nervous now because I was ah! before. But... <laughs> We're always kind, we promise. <laughs> oh, so, Alina, getting started with our first question, um, your vision with your company, 3BL Associates, has been to take a people plus planet approach to create a more sustainable and regenerative Middle East. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so we started in 2010, and I think our mission has evolved um, to become a lot more global than, than it was when we started. It was more Middle East focused. Um, and basically, we're a strategy consultancy that uses sustainable development challenges, whether that's climate change, conflict, um, health issues, unemployment, as opportunities to create economic, social, and environmental wealth for countries, for companies, for communities, and the planet. Um, and as a strategy consultancy, we're always looking for that win-win for you know business, government, and society, which is the people part, as well as for the planet, which is you know the environment. So one of our most recent projects, Public Planet Partnerships, is actually taking this approach even further. So it's, it's a very experimental methodology at the moment, but it's a set of tools and values um, that we've been developing that would enable um, the public, so businesses, nonprofits, scientists, and governments to partner with the planet in mutually beneficial ways. So mutually beneficial being the key word here. This is not about extracting or exploiting nature and natural resources, but rather collaborating with nature. So, you know, the same way that you wouldn't go into business as, as a government with, you know, a company um, in a public-private partnership, unless there was something in it for both sides, we're trying to develop the same kind of legal structure um, for nature. So it's, I don't want to get too technical, but we're really excited about the implications on nature's economic rights over its own resources. And, and I can definitely share an article with you after the call, which you can um, post on your, on your podcast. I love that. And I think 
it's so much easier for two companies coming together as an example to have advocates for each of them, but who is advocating for nature if not ourselves? So that's a really beautiful thing that you're doing with your organization. I know um, outside of your business and inside of your business, you're working on so many different things. So um, why don't you share with us some of the key projects you're working on and the impact that you hope they'll have? 3PL is kind of divided into two parts. The one half is the consultancy, so that's where we do client work. Um, but then the other half is our think do tank. So unlike a think tank that just you know maybe publishes research or makes recommendations, we also implement them. So the public planet partnerships project is one example of that. And another one that we just launched um, recently, it's it's still in beta, but if you go to diversityonboard.org, it's, it's up at the moment. Um, so that's another one of our projects that we basically started to get more gender diversity on boards in the Arab world. Um, but not just gender diversity, because I think inclusion isn't just gender specific. And mm. inclusive societies are not just inclusive of, of women, but also in our region, um, in the Middle East, 60% of the population is under 25, which is, you know, huge. So it's also getting more millennials on boards. Um, it's getting, you know, more of the differently abled on boards. So any underrepresented group, um, because at the end of the day, you're, whether it's a corporate board or a government board, those boards need to understand and be able to serve their citizens and their customers. So we're really excited about that. And I kind of fell into that one. So it started as an idea. Um, mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to join the Bahrain delegation to Davos last year at the World Economic Forum. Um, and it was very historic because it was the first time that the World Economic Forum was co-chaired by seven women. Wow. So on the way back. Yeah, it was really, really a very um, historic moment. So on the way back from the forum, a female colleague and I were talking. It's a really long car ride to the airport, so it's like two hours. And we were talking about the lack of opportunities to source exceptional women and match them to organizations looking to diversify their boards. Mm -hmm. um, and according to the World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Report, it would take the Middle East 153 years <gasps> to close the gender no. gap. Oh, wow. my goodness. Um, and, and that's a huge improvement because two years ago, it was 356 years. So <gasps> you're making <laughs> a lot so of I progress. <laughs> we're making huge progress. Um, so what started is, oh, someone should really start this, turned into we ended up starting it. So, it was, you know, I shared the idea with a few other women when I got back to Bahrain and then kind of got pushed into doing it. And, you know, the next thing I know, I've we've started another social enterprise. So it's really exciting. And I think in terms of, you know, the global gender gap report and a lot of rankings and indices around gender equality, it's exciting for me to be able to play a small part in, you know, maybe... Um, closing that gender gap and not having it take you know another 150 years and um, and just creating more inclusive business and government policies and societies. 
Yeah, I think creating in uh, taking a small part or a really large part. I mean, that's a big jump already from, you know, over 300 years to just 150 years to close that gender gap. And I think what you said is really important about the organizations, the government and everything actually being able to serve its constituents and being able to understand the needs of its populations and its people. And how can you do that if there are so many people who aren't represented or who don't have a voice at the table? So that's really beautiful work that you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's also, I have to emphasize, it's not just because it's the right thing to do, which of course it is, but it's also good, you know, for business. There's so Mm. many studies that bring up the gender um, or the the case for diversity. So gender being one that in terms of companies that are more diverse, outperform their peers and profit margins and returns on equity. And and I love um, something Ariana Huffington said uh, during the financial crisis when it was something along the lines of, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters, they might still be around. So, oh, I love her. <laughs> and we love Ariana Huffington as well. So. <laughs> Whether it's you know in, in business or even in security, in in terms of inclusive security and having more women in the sector, there's also been studies that show that. Although women are not afraid or reluctant to use force when necessary, they're more effective at de-escalating violence. And Mm. violence obviously comes with a lot of costs to the economy, a lot of social costs. So yeah, just to emphasize that it is the right thing to do. And it's also the, the wiser thing to do. Incredible. Alina, I know you have another big project that you've been working on, which is a book that's coming out on February 26th which is Compassionate Counterterrorism, the Power of Inclusion in Fighting Fundamentalism. And we understand that you'll be talking about some radical ways to think about and abolish terrorism nonviolently. I know April and I are really excited to read it, but before that, can you tell us what we can expect and what you've learned from writing this book? So I think to abolish terrorism is a really big um, is a really big statement. I I hope again that this plays some part in moving us to a post fundamentalist future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to suggest that this book is the antidote and solution to ending terrorism. But it's it's a really personal book. Um, one because I was a senior at NYU during 9/11. Mm-hmm. And a few years after that, when I was back in Bahrain, I was friends with a group of Navy SEALs who lost half of their team in an ambush in Afghanistan. Um, and only one survived. And I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the book, uh, Lone Survivor. No, we mm-hmm. haven't, but, but um, put it on the list. Yes. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg stars in it. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not new. It's, it's quite a few years old now, but it's based on his story. And both incidents profoundly impacted me and mm-hmm. I felt compelled just to analyze why or what drives people to become violent extremists but more importantly how do we solve this so I did a lot of academic research on the topic during my Fulbright scholarship but compassionate counterterrorism is not meant to be an academic book 
it's really written to engage the everyday intellectually curious reader who's looking for a sober and honest analysis, but also something that is a lot more optimistic on how we can counter terrorism more effectively and non-violently. Mm-hmm. Um, it is definitely backed up with a lot of data, but it also has a lot of stories on you know, how love demobilized one of the most ruthless terrorist organizations in the 1970s or what urban policies in the Belgian city of Mechelen, which has the highest uh, Muslim population in Belgium, has made it so resilient to terrorism that not one of its 20,000 Muslims have left to join ISIS compared to Brussels and Antwerp, where there's a lot of violent radicalization. So the book is definitely grounded in in data, but it also shares a very optimistic um, narrative. Um, There's my own personal reflections and even some spiritual musings, which you wouldn't normally find in a book about terrorism. And that's what I had hoped it would be. And and during the first round of book editing, my publisher had actually hired reviewers to kind of give their first take on the content. Um, So this was in July. And one of of the biggest compliments I got was one reviewer was saying how he was somewhat dreading um, this, you know, very dense and depressing summer reading. Um, but actually found it very friendly and approachable and as well as a much needed narrative. So you can actually download a sample of the book on my website, Mm -hmm. um, which I can give you the link for as well. And I can't wait to hear what you think. I know you sent us the um, introductory chapter and I loved looking through that and seeing what is to come. It reminds me of a podcast that I heard years ago NPR has a podcast called Invisibilia, which looks at sort of the invisible things that have really large impact on our lives. And they had an episode where they they talked about a town in Denmark that took a very radically different and peaceful approach to um, people who were from Syria, who were living there and who then somehow became radicalized, certain you know, age groups of young men specifically, and how the police force took a completely different attitude and helped to create community for these young men. So I, I want to share that with you because it was something that um, when I was looking at your book and, and your book coming out, I feel like this is the positive way that we can make society better and support young people. So I just, um, I wanted to share that with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. Um, I haven't heard of the one in Denmark uh, specifically, but it sounds very similar to what um, what Mechelen did in Belgium. And mm-hmm. their, their mayor is just such an, like an enlightened politician. It was so refreshing to, to speak to him. And one of the key success factors is that the police are not seen as punitive. They're really seen as part of the community that, you know, they interact with youth at community centers. So they're really seen as friends and almost stewards of of community well-being for everyone and not just one segment of society. And I think that inclusive narrative makes such a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Lena, also, um, I know the book is coming out soon. Do you have a list of places where our listeners can find the book if they're interested? That's on all the usual places. So it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 
Um, you can go to Penguin Random House's website and order it from them directly. So those are just a few of the ones okay. I think that would probably be the favorites. <laughs> Very good. Those are great options. <laughs> So Lena, switching gears a little bit, you've been so successful and it's easy for those on the outside looking in to see the successes, but we don't always see the obstacles. We absolutely love the work that you're doing in the world. How do you define success and can you talk about some highs and lows? Yeah, so... so um I think the definition of success probably changes, you know, at different stages of your life. And I don't know that I would consider myself successful just because I'm one of, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. You you never feel that you've really done enough mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't ever feel like you've quite gotten there or, you know, you, I don't know if there's ever a point you reach when you think, okay, I've made it, I'm done, I'm successful now. Right. Um, but... <laughs> I'm definitely proud of what I've accomplished. Um, But there's also a quote that really resonates with me, which I don't remember who said it, but it's something along the lines of the planet doesn't need more successful people. It needs, you know, more peacemakers, healers and and lovers. And so for me, that would be my definition of success. And that's what I'm trying really hard to do um, through my work. And it's definitely rewarding. I mean, there's such an incredible high that you get out of being so excited to work to the point that you have to you have to force yourself to take time off because you could just work <laughs> seven days a week you know 365 days a year and never take a vacation because you love what you do but then also end up forgetting who you are and just you know who you are without your work mm. um but it's it's definitely also come with its challenges and you know, I, when I reflect on every year and now that it's the new year, I think we all kind of look back on the year before. And I always feel that it's, it's been such an extraordinary year, but also one of the most challenging. And I think there's always that polarity of really incredible things that comes as a sacrifice often. And it's, it also comes with a lot of challenging situations. So um, a few months after we started 3BL, it was, at the end of 2010, there is an incredible high in, in doing something and, you know, having faith and freedom to do what I love. But then after we'd made the decision, you know, to, to do that, and I optimistically left a steady job and salary for the first time in my life, the Arab Spring rippled across the Middle East and, you know, we ran out of money. I couldn't pay myself for almost two years until we recovered. So that was tough. I mean, to keep going with that um, complete political uncertainty, like total financial insecurity and starting a business is is hard enough. So that was definitely a low, um, but also a really huge um, lesson in growth. And I think, you know, for every every fellowship or award I've received, there's at least double of awards and fellowships I've applied for or was nominated for that I didn't get. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that kind of awareness is important. And also last year was really tough for me because I was, I was doing so much. I definitely um, overwork and 
I got really sick. And, you know, I, I know all of these things intellectually about not neglecting your own self-care and not neglecting your personal sustainability as you're working on the world's sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it really took a toll. And I, I couldn't even walk for 20 minutes without needing to rest. I, I oh. felt so weak and I'd run a marathon a couple of years ago. So that was really tough. But also, again, I know this sounds very cliched, but it was also a gift because it was a huge reminder that what I was doing wasn't sustainable for me and that I really needed to make a lot of changes in my personal life if I wanted to be able to carry on doing the work that I that I do and love. Mm-hmm. That's so important. I think that's a huge reminder for everyone that Yes, the work you're doing is is incredible, but also you have to make time to put yourself first and, and to take care of yourself as well. Right, exactly. And I think too, all of us being fans of Ariana Huffington <laughs> and her, <laughs> probably her, her Thrive Global as I am, you know, your story is similar to hers and to so many women and people who have put their hearts and their souls into their work And then we've gotten sick. So, you know, there has to be a a better balance. And so I think the awareness is definitely the first step. Yeah. Lena, I'm curious, with so many projects and speaking engagements going on at the same time, can you talk to us a bit about your love of nature, Bodhisattva, and how you stay grounded? I think with staying grounded, um, again, maybe it's, it's sounds cliched because I know a lot of people say this, but meditating really helps me stay grounded. It's it's so easy to fall into the trap of relying on decompressing in ways that either distract you or numb you. So whether it's, you know, binging on Netflix or going to the spa or having a drink with friends. And all of those are important, but the only thing that really truly grounds me um, and the thing that I can do no matter where I am. So even if I don't have access to nature. I can always breathe and center and meditate and just be with myself without the noise. And without those distractions, you start to become a lot more self-aware, you know, of your thoughts, your emotions, your physical pain. You just become a lot more present. And that presence isn't compartmentalized to when, you know, just when you meditate, it spills into other areas or every aspect of your life. So last year, when I before I got sick, I'd actually stopped meditating because I was so busy. Um, mm-hmm. But if I hadn't have stopped, I would have been much more aware of what my body was was going through. And nature is is definitely another thing where I feel very whole and centered and connected. Um, I don't always have access to that, so that's that's unfortunate. But with meditation, it's something that you know you have access to no matter where you are. So. That's kind of my my go-to. And with all the travel, with all the projects, with all the uncertainties, it's the only thing that really keeps me sane and happy and, and kind of positive. Um, and I, I think with all the speaking engagements as well, before I speak, I always meditate and also think very intentionally about what is the message that I need to kind of bring across or what is it that I can say with my words that will have the most impact. And I think part of meditation and that kind of presence for me has also been taking ego out of it where ego isn't only thinking that you're amazing or, you know, being arrogant. It's also thinking you're not good enough Mm -hmm. Um, or what if I say the wrong thing or, you know, what if 
because it's still then about you and not really about you just being a vehicle for, you know, for the message or for the work. So that's how I, you know, try and, and stay grounded and centered. But I definitely still have a lot of work to do as well. That is a very profound thought because we hear a lot about not being enough and you are enough. And I think that all of that is really important. But if we think about it as, hey, that's the ego, that's so powerful, Lena. That's a really great thought. I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm, I'm really glad. And it really helped me because I, and I'm sure so many people can relate to this, but we're so hard on ourselves. And there is no one that is more self-critical, that has higher standards you know, of, of myself than me. And so you're always beating yourself up. I should have said this. I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I wish I'd, you know, done this. And so it's really liberating when it's not really about you. And it also makes it much easier to deal with rejections or with criticism because when you take yourself out of it and you aren't your work, it just makes a huge uh, difference and a big shift in the way that you're able to kind of navigate everything. Well, I have to agree, and, and we love getting out in nature, and I think that the reason some of these things um, feel cliche, like talking about meditation being super helpful, is because they are universally useful. So, you know, I think that's, that's great advice. We would love to know your best piece of advice for women looking to take their next step forward. Any books, tools, or resources that you would recommend to us and our listeners? Honestly, the best piece of advice I've ever heard, um, and this is for anybody, not just for women, but it's, it's actually from a social entrepreneur who I really admire. And she always says, just start and let the work teach you. Mm. And I think that that applies to you know whether you're starting your own business or a podcast or a social enterprise um, or a new career. Um, I think that it's, for me, this work has almost raised me. It's helped me grow in ways that I, I wouldn't have grown. And I don't have to know what I'm doing. And every day has been just a gift in, in learning and growth. So that would be my best advice. And just let the work be this prolific um, teacher, professionally, spiritually, and emotionally. But at the same time, while doing that, also being aware that you're not your work and your work doesn't define you. That would be my advice. I love that. And I think I know myself in particular, and, and maybe it's a, a woman thing, is that it's easy to overanalyze. And I know sometimes I probably hold myself back from moving forward in things because I, I feel like I should know more before I get started. So I love the idea that you're saying just get started and then you know follow where it takes you and learn as much as you can along the way that's incredible mm, it's so true and I, I do think it's the woman thing because there's also been studies that they looked at men and women applicants applying for jobs and you know men will look at a list of qualifications they need to have and be like well you know I, I have five out of ten things I'll learn the other like mm -hmm. five things that I don't know Whereas women will be like, well, I have nine out of 10 um, that, you know, I don't have this one thing. So maybe I won't apply. Mm -hmm. um, right. So I think definitely, <laughs> definitely <laughs> getting out of your head and being okay with, you know, not 
not knowing is such a huge uh, lesson or, or piece of advice that I think we could all kind of take on board and, and apply. Fantastic advice. <laughs> Lena, it might be your first <laughs> podcast, but you did an absolutely beautiful job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. No, it was super fun. Lena, um, with that, we want to say thank you for joining us. We've had so much uh, fun chatting and we really loved hearing your story. As always, we're looking forward to sharing more stories soon. In the meantime, check out our website at herstepforward.com or follow us on Instagram at herstepforward for all the latest updates. And if you'd like to reach out to us, shoot us a message on Instagram or email us at info at herstepforward.com. See you next time.